Let's turn for our reading from the Word of God, Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, and we read from the first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When Christians talk about being saved, and we shouldn't shy away from the language of being saved, when we talk about being saved, we are talking about something that has many aspects. Salvation, as the Bible describes it, is something that is rich. It's a wonderful experience that addresses everything that's wrong with human beings. Our sin, our alienation from God, our liability to death, physical death, and spiritual death. All of these issues are addressed by salvation. And when we're saved, all our need as human beings is addressed by God and his grace and mercy. And because salvation is so rich and so diverse in all its aspects, it's not a surprise that various different words are used in the New Testament to describe salvation. There isn't just one word that says everything about being saved. We need lots of words, and the New Testament provides them. That's a good exercise, and maybe we'll do that in some of our guest services in future, to look at the different words that are used to describe salvation so that we see just how rich and how wonderful it is. One very important term in the New Testament is the word justified. We have it in the passage that we were reading earlier there in Romans 5. And it's 
a word that's often used by the Apostle Paul, uh, especially in Romans. Uh, And when some time ago we worked our way uh, little by little through Romans 1 to 8, we saw justified and justification cropping up regularly. It's one of the, the big words in Paul's letter to the Romans. The great doctrine of justification. Uh, and it was a doctrine that was obscured really for centuries, particularly in the Middle Ages, uh, in the professing church. Uh, the truth about justification uh, was twisted, it was overlaid with human tradition. Uh, it was lost sight of in many parts of the church. And one of the great things that the Lord did in the Reformation uh, was to raise up people like Luther and others who rediscovered the truth of justification. They didn't invent it. They didn't make it up. What they did was clear away a lot of rubbish and to bring out justification in all its beauty and its glory. And that was one of the primary things the Lord did in the Reformation. The truth of justification by faith alone. It is a precious word. Now we need to understand it, of course, as it's used in the Bible. Because we have to be careful sometimes the way that we use words, particularly nowadays, is maybe a little different from how it's used in the Bible. So we need to look carefully at what the Bible says. Because if we nowadays talk about being justified, usually we're saying, well, I'm right. I've taken up a position. Others disagree, but I'm justified because I'm correct. And it sometimes can be a word that suggests a certain pride. If I'm justified, I'm right, and probably you're wrong. But if we take that meaning uh, into the Bible, into the New Testament, uh, we're really going to go astray and get confused when we think about Paul describing Christians as justified and setting out the, the truth of justification. Justification deals with our standing in God's sight in the court of heaven. It's legal language sort of word that would be used in the law courts. And here in the New Testament, it's used of our standing before God in the court of heaven, our being righteous before the holy judge. Now we need to unpick that a little and tease it out and see exactly what Paul means when he talks about being justified. So we're really focusing our thoughts The words we have at the very beginning of Romans 5 and verse 1, and we're thinking of justified through faith. Look at this great doctrine at the very heart of the gospel. Uh, Luther, I think, was right uh, when he described this as an article by which the church stands or falls. If the church is right about justification, it's basically sound. If a church is wrong about justification, it's lost the gospel. And it's questionable if we should describe it as a church at all. So this is a vital matter. It's a wonderful Bible truth justified through faith. 
The first thing we want uh, to consider is the need for justification. The need for justification. Why all this talk about it? Why does Paul address justification so often? Does it matter that much? Why do we need to be justified in Bible language? Well, the fundamental answer is that we're sinners. We need to be justified because the Bible says we're sinners. We are people who have broken God's law and who continue to break God's law. We're sinners. We may not want to accept it. And it's one of the things that perhaps is hardest about the gospel for people to accept, to admit they're sinners. They want to think they're not too bad, maybe not perfect, but they're okay. And then you open the Bible, it says you're a sinner and you're dead in sins. But that's why we need to be justified, because we're sinners in God's sight. And we need to understand what it means to be a sinner. We can toss the word about, but are we clear what the Bible means when it says we're sinners? Two sides to our sinfulness, our our sinnership, you might say. First of all, the Bible says we are sinners in Adam. Sinners in Adam. In other words, you and I are spiritual descendants of Adam, the first man, the literal first member of the human race. And we're his spiritual descendants. In Eden, God willed that whatever Adam did, he did it as the representative of the whole human race. All of us were represented by Adam. That is how God decreed it in Eden. Whatever Adam does affects all of us. And so we read later on, Romans 5, it's just after the portion we were reading earlier, verse 12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. That's why the world basically is the state it is. That's why people are the way they are. Sin has entered through Adam. We are his spiritual descendants. And so the Bible tells us we're all born with a sinful nature. You don't have to teach a human being how to sin. They manage it pretty well themselves, don't they? And it's because of the heart we have. It's a fallen, sinful heart. And we cannot, and we don't want to change that. We might be sorry about some of the things we do. We might be sorry sometimes we've hurt people. But we don't fundamentally want to change. We're sinners in Adam. We're his spiritual children. But the Bible also tells us not only are we sinners in Adam, we're also sinners in practice. We're sinners in practice. That sinful nature we've inherited from Adam shows itself in sinful actions and words and thoughts. It's like a tree producing fruit. There is no point going to an apple tree 
and getting disgruntled because you can't find any pears on it. That'd be ludicrous. The tree produces according to its nature. Apple tree produces apples. What does a sinful heart produce? It produces sins. And so we're sinners in practice. We desire to do what's contrary to God's holiness. Not only do we desire to do it, but we actually do it. That's the fruit of the nature we've got. We sin because we're sinners. Sometimes people think it's the other way around. We're sinners because we sin. But the Bible has a much more profound understanding of human nature. We sin because we're sinners. We do the things we do because of the heart, the nature we've got. And we're sinners by practice, showing that we are Adam's spiritual descendants. And so we disobey God. We act contrary to God's holiness. And God spells out what his holiness means for us in his law. God's law really is the the whole of this book, the Bible. And God shows us what his holiness is like. And we live lives that ignore him, that put him to one side, that, that break his law day and daily. We're lawbreakers. As John writes in 1 John 3 and verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We break God's law and we deserve punishment for our sins. Paul writes, again in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And that's what our sins earn us. Eternal death. So it's very clear that we need justification. We need this sorted out. If we are sinners in Adam and if we're sinners in practice, and we can't change ourselves, we need some way in which we can stand in the presence of a holy God. Those who are sinners in Adam and sinners in practice can't do that. We don't. So how can we be justified? How can those sins be dealt with? The need for justification. And every one of us needs it. Well, that takes us to the second thing we want to think about, and that's the basis for justification. How can sinners like you and me be justified? How can we stand righteous in God's sight? How can it be done? Because a holy God cannot overlook sin. We've got to be clear on that. God can't turn a blind eye to our sin or pretend it's not too bad. What kind of a God would he be if he simply ignored sin? If God could look on evil and just say it doesn't matter. That's a God I don't want anything to do with. And I don't expect you would want anything to do with such a God. Because he's holy, he can't ignore or overlook sin. 
or pretend that it doesn't really matter very much. God is a holy God. God is a just God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3.26 about how God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. He must be both. We want a God who justifies us, but he's got to be just in doing it. There's no injustice in God, and sin has to be dealt with. Justice must be done. Sometimes in earthly courts, justice isn't done. But in the court of heaven, it certainly will be done. And so if God is to declare that sinners like us are forgiven, that we're righteous in his sight, there must be a righteousness that God takes into account. And it isn't ours, because we haven't got any. If God says these people are righteous, these people are justified, it can't be because of anything in us. It's not because of some little spark of goodness he sees somewhere in our hearts, because there isn't one. So there must be a righteousness that God takes into account when he justifies sinners. We can't supply any righteousness. So who does? And the New Testament's answer is clear. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can supply the righteousness we need. And the Lord Jesus Christ has supplied the righteousness we need. Lord Jesus, the Son of God made flesh. And can we take that in? It's the God we've offended. It's the God whose law we've broken. He's the God who supplies what we need. Could the gospel be any better news than that? What you couldn't do, God has done. He's done it in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a righteousness that God takes into account when he justifies us. And that righteousness is supplied by the obedience of Jesus. There are many ways that we could describe the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But fundamentally, what Jesus does is to obey. There's what we sometimes call his act of obedience. His act of obedience is Jesus keeping God's law perfectly. You haven't done it. I haven't done it. But the Lord Jesus Christ has kept God's law perfectly. The only human being who has done that. That's why Jesus in Matthew 3, 15, at his baptism, talks about fulfilling all righteousness. And that's what Jesus does. He fulfills everything that God's law requires. And he does does it in our place. The law that you and I have broken, Jesus has kept. And so there's his act of obedience. But we need more. We need what's sometimes called his passive obedience or his suffering obedience. 
And now we're thinking about Jesus obediently going to the cross, dying there on the cross in the place of sinners like us. And what was Jesus doing on the cross? He's taking the full penalty for the sins of every person who'll ever trust in him. The punishment, the guilt, everything was loaded on Christ and he took it in our place. That's what Paul means when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21's closest, I think, perhaps to a favorite verse, full of gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He went obediently to the cross. So Jesus has kept God's law in our place. And Jesus has died in the cross in our place. And so he has supplied the righteousness that we don't have. The perfect obedience of Jesus, keeping God's law and dying in the place of sinners, that righteousness now is there available for sinners like you and me, so that we might be justified. Romans 5.19, Paul writes, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. There's the basis for justification. You see, at the Reformation, Luther and others were accused of a great make-believe. Luther was accused of saying that God pretends that sinners are saints. God pretends that bad people are good people. And of course, if that's what Luther had said, it would be thoroughly unbiblical nonsense. That's not what he said. God doesn't pretend that bad people are good people. God counts the righteousness and the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ as belonging to those who don't have any righteousness, to those who are sinners. There's no pretending in justification. So the need for justification, we're sinners. The basis for justification, it's the righteousness of Jesus. So what then, thirdly, is the nature of justification? Let's pin down what exactly justification means. Justification is God's declaration that sinners like us are righteous in his sight. That in the court of heaven, standing before the judge of all the earth, we are righteous. Perfect justice God counts the righteousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as belonging to us. The righteousness of Christ is charged to our account. And so God, in perfect justice, can declare us to be righteous before him. He treats us as Jesus deserves. Can you believe that? Can you take that in? 
that God treats us as Jesus deserves. And so Paul can write in Romans 5 later on in the chapter about the gift of righteousness. It's given to us. It's not something we work up. It's not something we produce. It's the gift of God. Justification deals fully with our sinful condition. Because Jesus died on the cross and took our punishment, we have forgiveness. Our sins are wiped out. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There is no penalty to be paid. God will not come along one day to the Christian and say, most of your sins were forgiven, but here are a few that weren't covered. All our sins are forgiven because Christ has taken the penalty. All the sins of anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ have been dealt with. It speaks in the Old Testament about our sins being thrown into the depths of the sea. They are gone. They are forgiven. They will never be recalled. So because of Jesus' suffering, his passive obedience, we've forgiven us. But that isn't even the end of it. We said, didn't we, that Jesus has kept God's law perfect. Every commandment, every requirement of God's law, Jesus has kept. His active obedience. And that is also counted as ours. As if we had lived that life of perfect obedience. As if we had kept every commandment of God. And so the righteousness of Jesus is counted as ours. In the court of heaven, we stand before God not simply as those who are not guilty. Now, that would be wonderful if that were all there was to salvation. If God looked at us and said, you're not guilty, we'd be filled with praise and thanksgiving. But it's better than that. It's not only that we're not guilty, but we are positively righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. His keeping of God's law in every detail is counted as ours. And so we're justified. We're declared righteous. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, quoted before, God made him who'd no sin to be sin for us. And then Paul goes on, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? You see what the New Testament is saying? When God looks on us, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees a reflection of his Son. Well, it's not that God doesn't know about our sins, but they're forgiven. And we're declared righteous in his sight. And God looks at his people. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus. 
And he treats us as Jesus deserves. That's the heart of the gospel. The Bible didn't tell us we wouldn't dare think of such a thing. We wouldn't dare believe it. But it is gloriously true. The need for justification, basis of justification, the nature of justification. I've got to say one more thing as we finish. The reception of justification. How can this become yours? The work of Christ is complete. It's perfect. Nothing need ever be added to it. Everything that sinners need is provided in Christ. That's wonderful. But no sinner is automatically justified. Nobody can say, well, Jesus lived and died, and so I'm all right. I can just go on with my life, and I'll be okay before God, because Jesus has done all of this. Ah, no. There's a gift of righteousness that Paul speaks of. It's a free gift because Jesus has paid the price. But in order to receive that gift, we have to do something. Let's not be under any illusions. To receive the gift, we've got to do something. And so Paul here, Romans 5.1, writes about being justified through faith. The channel by which you and I receive justification is faith. Justified through faith. That's why when the Philippian jailer came in in desperation to Paul, Acts 16, and when he said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say to him, well, Jesus has died and you're justified already, so you're all right. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And the implication is clear. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. Don't tell yourself anything else. Don't be under any illusions that there's a back door into heaven. There isn't. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You must be justified through faith. You need to know the basics of the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done to save sinners? You need to accept that that is true. And you must commit yourself to Christ as Lord and Savior. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. Now you will believe by God's grace. The Bible tells us that. God enables us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have to believe. We have to believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in him. Then Paul and the whole of the scriptures tell us. Then you will be justified in God's sight. You will be declared righteous in the court of heaven. You will be saved. Somebody's described faith as holding out empty hands. It's not a bad description. Our faith doesn't earn salvation. Our faith isn't a payment we make. Sometimes people think that. 
as if we contribute faith and God sees that and so he thinks this person deserves to be saved. Nonsense. Our faith isn't a payment. Our faith isn't a contribution. It's our empty hands to receive the free gift of justification. But without it, we will not be justified. We will not be saved. It's the channel that puts this wonderful gift in our hands. Justified through faith. And that was a liberating message for Luther. He said it was like going through open gates into paradise. Very vivid how Luther described it. The freedom to know you don't have to earn salvation. Indeed, you can't earn salvation. It's a free gift. And to think that because of what Christ has done in his perfect life and his death on the cross, you and I can stand before a holy God, righteous. And God looks at us and he sees his son. God looks at us and he treats us as Jesus deserves. There's no better news you will ever hear in your life than the good news of the gospel. This is the only hope for sinners like us. But what a hope. What a wonderful, perfect hope. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. If you have, you're justified. You're righteous in God's sight. You've nothing to fear at the last judgment. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, then the whole burden of your sin is still in your shoulders. And when you stand before the righteous judge, it'll be received the sentence that your sins have earned. How tragic that any who hear the gospel should end up before God in their sin without hope when they've heard in the gospel, here's salvation, here's justification, here's everything you need in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. You'll be justified through faith.